how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Thank you for tuning in. This is the 200th episode of Creative Principles, a podcast interview series where we discuss routines, habits, and principles behind a creative life. We've had a lot of great interviews over the past few years, and there's valuable insights in every single conversation where we've talked to writers, directors, actors, chefs, musicians, cinematographers, and more. If this is your first time tuning in, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also, join millions of viewers for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we break down various storytelling lessons, such as how the 16 personalities are expressed through characters in shows like Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones. Another video would be how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, why movies in 1999 were indescribably great, and this week's video, Did Home Alone Ruin John Hughes' Career? That's Creative Principles on YouTube, link in bio. Now let's discuss the 200th episode where I sat down with Charles Randolph, and this interview is also available in print format on the Creative Screenwriting website, along with some other interviews that are print only and not available in audio format, including writer-actors such as Kevin Smith, Nick Kroll, and Stephen Merchant. That's the website for Creative Screenwriting Magazine. Now let's talk number 200. Charles Randolph is intrigued with things that frighten him. Complicated yet unusual subjects with unique internal conflicts are where his stories arise. Amongst these hard-hitting character studies, Randolph has credits such as The Life of David Gale, The Interpreter, Love and Other Drugs, The Big Short, and now Bombshell. In the latest movie, the story focuses on a group of women who conspire to take down Fox News head Roger Ailes for the toxic atmosphere he created within the conservative network. The film stars Charlize Theron as Megan Kelly, Nicole Kidman as Gretchen Carlson, John Lithgow as Roger Ailes, and Margot Robbie as the composite character Caleb Papisel. In this exclusive interview, Randolph discusses modern villains, societal obstacles for characters, how he uses a thematic toolkit, a writer's contract to the audience, balancing the real and the unusual, and how to make politics entertaining. First, I'm looking for things that frighten me a little bit, you know, that feel complicated and um, maybe a little unusual. Um, so, you know, something that sort of gets your blood pumping, you know, you can imagine people being engaged by and people being willing to explore, um, the various nooks and crannies of the world. And then I'm looking for characters. You know, I think the, for me, um, you know, we often pretend like having a movie made about you is Hollywood's way of giving you an award, but that's not really what I'm after. I'm not after nobility. I'm not after you know, extreme circumstances. I'm really interested in people who have a rich and unusual internal conflict um, that can drive the story forward. And so 
that's really it. It's just, you know, does this world have human beings that are just full of these sort of this, each one of them has this sort of profound internal dynamic they're dealing with. Um, And so that's probably the, the second most important thing. And the third most important thing is that I'm always interested in worlds that I can bring a little bit of humor to. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot. It doesn't have to have a strong satirical component, but it has to have enough that we can, you know, that we that 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 can be employed. And there are very few worlds do not. But um, yeah, that's that's important for me at least in terms of the types of things I want to write. Does the satire kind of lead you towards newer villains, like the you know the kind of bad people in the Big Short or Bombshell? They're different than we've really seen before because of all the just changes in society. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on on some of the you know if you had to just break it down to good guy bad guy type scenarios? How do you kind of see that as the new villains in some of your films? Yeah, you know I don't. It's such a great question. I don't know that I do. You know, in terms of good guys versus bad guys. Great movie characters from Charles Foster Kane on have been people we are ambivalent about, right? And often people that the creators are ambivalent about. So if someone says, how do you feel about Michael Corleone, right? I love him. I mean, he's an interesting guy. He's fascinating. Do I like him? No, he's a bad guy in some ways. He becomes a man, a deeply compromised man. So so in a way, you know, I'm always interested in characters who resist my ability to put them in those boxes. They are interesting to the degree that I can't put them in those boxes. And so in a film like this, Megan Kelly plays someone who is about to face her own complicity in the culture of Fox and as it leads to sexual harassment. Her own silence is, is, she realizes, has enabled this problem to go further and further. And she's forced to even face the amount, the number of women that have, have come forward with some feeling of guilt about it. So, you know, that character, you know, possesses goodness and nobility in that degree, but she's also compromised. She's also a person who has perpetuated that ideology, who, you know, who has played to a certain kind of ethnocentrism so there are, you know, there there are good and bad about all of them, and you know, certainly in in the character of Roger Ailes, there's there's you know there's both human components and then other components that are extremely dark. So I guess what I would say, Brock, is that film is inherently humanizing. It inherently does that, and for a film to become political, for it to become indemnitory of its own characters, it often has to, you often have to step outside of that world and point down from above. This is a great filmmaker finger pointing down. And that usually is not a very good film. It usually doesn't work. Sometimes it works. It worked in the end of the big short. We did, I think, a very good job in the last three minutes of the film of sort of maybe from, because the voice of the film had become so dominant, like letting that voice sort of say something about it, about the world and the situation and its characters. But generally speaking, you want to avoid that. So, you know, your feeling of badness is limited to whatever those people achieve in that world. Do you have the same approach to, you know, just sensitive and controversial subjects in general? I mean, they're, they're more than just obstacles for characters. They're really saying something about all of society. Absolutely right. They're metonymic. They're, 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 those those stories, hopefully, 
communicate something about our broader situation, right? And and the key is, I think, to do so in a way that evokes those those issues and and makes people think about those issues and ponder them without ever becoming too didactic or too um, you know too 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 you know pedagogic about it. I think that's probably the that's probably the way I would put it. Is that I'm interested in these worlds that are rich and complicated that I can say something in that has a very definite perspective, but never, but always judging that perspective. Right. And much of what I appreciate in journalism too, right. I like journalists who come from a certain place. I know where they're coming from, but they're, but they're willing to question their own place they're coming from. They're not, they're not preaching to the converted. What's kind of some of the balance you strike specifically again with these movies, like in the big short, you're trying to explain some complicated financial issues and in both of these films, you're also balancing facts with dramatization. How do you kind of walk that line to make it informative but also entertaining? Well, uh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm I'm interested in complexity, right? So I'm, what I love about Big Short is the, the thematic complexity. What I love about Bombshell is the ideological complexity, right? So every one of them offers a different set of problems. And, you know, I sort of want to try and solve those problems um, but any, any means necessary, right? So um, I think what, what I've discovered over the years is that the audience will follow the narrative that's based on plot. We know that. And they'll follow it if it's based on character. They'll also follow it if it's based on theme. And because we've trained so many people with documentaries, you know, and so um, you can go, you, you can get an audience to really go with you on any journey as long as they understand what that linkage is supposed to be. As long as they understand why they're being asked to follow one scene after the other. Uh, and so I guess I would say, you know, one of the tools that I employ a lot is to let the thematic and the power of the thematic, particularly if it's a hot button issue, drive you forward at, uh, the way a documentary does, as opposed to just letting the characters drive you forward or the plot drive you forward. When you're trying to write some of these scenes that are uh, pretty daunting uh, to, to watch as a viewer, is there a point where you can go too far? Do you see just the, the audience feeling uncomfortable or surprised by something? Do you see that as all part of the experience? Is there a line you like wouldn't cross with a film? There are, but you know, they're probably different lines than other people, right? So, um, um, it is amazing to me how, if you're in a world that's pretty real and based in real events, how sensitive and, and, and powerful scenes can be like the scene between Kayla and Roger and this one, you know, um, compared to say something, you know, um, violent, like, you know, um, the end of Joker. So, you know, it's just, it's amazing how um, the a film itself is a contract between you, the writer and the director and, and the audience, right? And, and very small little things establish that contract, you know, even the, the way the credit sequence works, even the first scenes. And so, you know, often when I grow uncomfortable in a film, it's because I don't quite fully trust the contract that I have with that filmmaker. I don't know where they're going to go, if they're going to go too far. And so what I try and do is be very clear and establish what the parameters are. 
and then push them only to the degree necessary to communicate the horror or the difficulty or the ugly situation. Um, But I'm never looking to shock or violate that contract. I'm never looking to, 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 to brutalize the audience in any way. I don't, I don't feel that works um, very well. And I feel like it takes you out of the movie. I feel like once you've sort of violated a certain trust, I don't know, you come back from that. Uh, And, you know, and, and, you know, that's, that's always the the key is to try and find a way to like stay within um, that, that emotional contract that you have and just push it to the degree you can elicit response and, and create an emotional experience, but not push it too far. So you've probably been asked a lot about um, Margot Robbie's character. It's my understanding she's somewhat of a composite. How do you create a composite character, but also make it a very real, like, well-grounded character and kind of simplify that to one person? Well, I mean, the nice things about composites is they're you're building them out of the same kinds of um, tools that you build any character out of, right? It's just you're making some of it a little bit more overt in terms of its reference to people and types. So any character you, you or I would write is based on people we've known, our life experience, characters from literature, characters from other movies, whatever. But what a composite is, is the threads are a little bit more obvious to people. So obviously if with someone like Kayla, I'm borrowing on some real women's exposure to Roger and you know those scenes are authentic because you kind of realize that legally they would have to be, or we couldn't portray them, but also because they have such specificity uh, and you're like, Oh, okay. That's, that's clearly based on someone that feels like it's based on someone's experience. Uh, and then of course there's also the meta textual element of you maybe read that in a review or you, you've read Brock's piece and you know that, I mean, so, so what, it, there's that component too, but, but so, 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 so that part is, is clearly composite. What, what's also composite that people don't quite realize is how you make other characters is just the other part of her life, her evangelicalism, her background, her family. And the rules there are the same as building any character, just something that is um, real and unusual. I'm always trying to balance real and unusual um, because if it's real, it will resonate. If it's unusual, it will be interesting. And so, you know, you can get interesting and not real. And you can get real and not interesting, but trying to find both of those together, trying to find where that Venn diagram overlaps in human beings is sort of a, 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 a thing I put, a set of glasses I put on when I write, and I try and make every component of the character adhere to that. Um, so, you know, and we can talk also about character building if you want, but I mean, that's really, that's really for me the thing I, you know, every moment, every minute of dialogue, every decision, you know, even the costuming, what's real and interesting, you know, always kind of trying to play those two off each other. Have you ever been hesitant with some of these films, like Back to David Gale or Love and Other Drugs, about a woman with Park, a young woman with Parkinson's? It seems like all of these films are big responsibilities as far as getting that character right, because it's representing someone out there that's dealing with something. I guess any movie could be that, but do you feel a big responsibility or do you have any hesitation with some of these movies? No, I do feel a big responsibility, and I feel hesitation. <laughs> I feel hesitation with all of them. Usually, the night before they open, and I'm, and I'm like, "Oh my God, did I get that right? Did I get that right?" Um, but yeah, no, I, you know, I take that responsibility very seriously. Um, you know, and it's always a little painful when 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 someone doesn't 
feel like that's been an accurate, real reflection, although I've been fairly lucky in my career that most of them have been extremely well-received. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, um, um, I, I do feel that, that, you know, people going through extreme circumstances and in complex situations, you know, do, do offer us, you know, a very unique way of seeing the world and one we can learn a lot from. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to try, but, but yeah, I'm always a little trepidatious. What's a little bit about your logistics? It seemed like that would involve a ton of research. Um, What's this process like for you, like from day one when you in a meeting or have an idea, or what does it all look like, kind of spaced out in your writing process and that kind of thing? Well, I love research. You know, I, I do this job because it's the best way to get paid to immerse myself in every conceivable aspect of another world, you know, including its music and its visuals and its, you know, its architectural design, its interior design. You know, it's people, it's topologies, you know, everything about the human, you know, the experience, the human experience of a different world, immerse myself in that and, and sort of still get paid and be able to move on. Right. So usually if you develop an expertise, say and you write a book about 17th century France, you're going to be, you know, you're going to spend much of your life addressing 17th century France, whereas I get the, have the pleasure of every eight months getting immersed in a new world. And that's, that's a real delight for me. Um, the cost of that is I probably don't see as many films as other writers and, and directors do. Like I'm unfortunately one of the costs of, of that kind of intense research is I, I read, you know, I probably read 50 to 60 books a year. Right. You know, and I read thousands of articles, but I don't see that many films. I probably see 30 films a year, you know. Uh, whereas I have friends, you know, in the film business who see, you know, easily a hundred, 200 films a year. So one of the costs of that is there's just, I'm limited by how much popular culture I can consume because I'm sort of wedded to, you know, uh, research and, and, and exploring the real world. And, and so, um, you know, that has certain limitations and it has certain benefits, but, but, uh, um, that is certainly the part of the job I, 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 I love the most is the ability to to just immerse myself fully in a, this different world. Um, you know, process once, once I've chosen a, a story, um, is usually, you know, about three months of, or two months of research. It'll depend on if there's a great underlying book. Certainly in the big short, Michael Lewis did such a phenomenal job of not only ex- of excavating that world, but presenting it in such an understandable, wonderful way that there was not that much to do. Um, that is very rare. I mean, usually with even an adaptation, you're looking to fill in and, and you kind of have to go back through and, and do some primary interviews or whatever. So, so if, it, if, if, if there isn't any, I'll, I'll read, you know, I think probably bombshells, I'm going to say 10 books and maybe a hundred articles, uh, and 20 primary interviews with, with the people. Um, the interviews are always tough, uh, Brock, because you don't want to talk to people too early in the process because you will have them on your shoulder when you're writing. And that's a little bit of a problem. Uh, so if their story is available by other means, if they've written an autobiography or if they've been talking to the press or if they filed a court affidavit, I prefer to kind of get the outlines of their story first and try and work out what, you know, what, the, what's going on there and then bring them in a little later in the process. Um, simply because then I'm, I know what I'm, looking for from them. And I know how that interaction can, can help. Um, uh, 
Um, so, and also they're more willing to talk to you once you're sort of, you've kind of got a sense of the story. It also keeps you from asking to sit down with people you don't really need because there's something very depressing about sitting down with someone and hearing them tell this heart-wrenching story and then not being able to use it. I also get a little concerned because I do provocative subjects that people have NDAs and they could be putting their jobs at risk. So I never want to put someone's livelihood at risk on a fishing exhibition on my part. So I'm always pretty careful about that. Um, and so I'll, I'll meet, you know, whoever I think is necessary to get it right. Um, Jay Roach, my director on this, for example, likes to meet everybody, every, every single person who's portrayed. He like he, he likes to try and meet them at some point for his own directorial flavor. I don't quite go that far. I, I tend to meet people just to, you know, occupy scenes if I can. Um, but you know, uh, that's, that's an important and last part of the research component is sitting down with the real people, real people and getting it right. Not to get like too technical, but do you, do you kind of tell them this is a movie, this will be dramatized, you know, it'll be kind of extended upon what they tell you, Do they expect to see a different version of themselves. Well, yeah, it's a really good question. They, you tell them, look, this is a movie. I'm not a journalist. I'm not quoting you. This will be, this is not a can, this is not a mirror. It's a canvas. So I'm going to take, I'm going to interpret, there's going to be a person like you on the screen, possibly with your name, but it's not really going to be you. It's going to be an aspect of your experience. Um, and they get that, but then no, <laughs> no one ever likes seeing themselves really on the screen, particularly in any kind of ambivalent way. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, it's, it's always, you know, it's always, uh, a little bit of a, of a process to get people and to break, to embrace kind of what you're doing with them. Um, but many are very appreciative and, you know, once, once you've captured some, something true and authentic, but yeah, I, I tend to tell them, look, this is exactly what this is. You can tell me anything cause I'll never quote you cause I have no desire to quote you. It doesn't, doesn't help the project. And, you know, the, that license usually means that a lot of people want to talk to you particularly once the movie stars get involved and they realize the film is going into production and it's going to be seen by you know, people around the world. I spoke with um, Jonathan Eagle, who wrote the Muhammad Ali biography a couple of years ago. He said he likes to read autobiographies as a researcher for feelings and attitudes and then biographies for like actual facts. Do you have anything like that that you do or different ways that you interview to really get to the bottom of something? And how do you kind of approach you know, these controversial questions with someone? Wow, what what interesting, uh, interesting. I yeah, I I I tend to find that with contemporary events, there's not a lot of cheating, and the reason is, if Gretchen Carlson goes out and says um, X happened, and everyone in her world knows X didn't happen, there's going to be people online and you know in the press saying no, that's not true. So because I'm dealing with contemporary events, I don't really have the necessity of parsing um, too much, you know, people's competing perspectives. We do have a little bit of that on Big Short, I mean, on Bombshell, because, you know, we have Gretchen Carlson who believes that she is the main driver of the firing of Ailes, and Megyn Kelly who believes that she played an important role, not the main role, but, but she was the straw that broke the camel's back. And their camps have sort of been competing in the press and often with Jay and I to sort of build their case. But you kind of, in evaluating it all, you kind of know 
what the truth is. You know, unlike journalists who have to write these stories up and have to embody sort of artificial you know, balance in the name of objectivity, we don't really have to do that so much. So I can sort of choose the version that I think is true. So I wouldn't say that his particular rule, which strikes me as a smart one, is something I employ. Um, but I, I do think it's important to always balance the conversations so that you're getting multiple perspectives, particularly on anything controversial. Is there a main goal to a film like this, like outside of entertainment and kind of showing what happened? Like, is it social change, awareness, healing? What do you kind of see? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so I'm always about, my films all have a component of, 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 of social awareness to them. You know, that's kind of, I come from a family of missionaries. That's always a bit of what I do. Um, that component is always present. But I view my job as to try and find a way to make politics uh, entertaining and entertainment political, right? I'm always trying to find a way to play those two off each other so that the films have something definite to say, but they're also exciting emotional experiences. They're, 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 they truly work as standalone entertainments so that if you were from a completely different culture and just watched it as a narrative, you could enjoy it as much as anyone else. At the same time, yeah, I just, I really want things to say something and, and, Saying something is not just making a moral point that we all know. Saying something is sort of asking us to engage with a moral point that might be a little controversial and might be a little bit tough and might be a little counterintuitive. So I'm always trying to do that, right? So, um, you know, in, in, in Bombshell, part of what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you think, we think, all of us, they wear, are in charge of conversations, in charge of political discourse, particularly if we're in the media. But we're often not. Often those conversations are in charge of us. And so, you know, that's that's not something I that's not necessarily an idea you know everyone wants to embrace. And I'm also saying that, you know, looking across the aisle uh is important, you know, and that, that there are issues that absolutely transcend our partisanship. Harassment is one of them, right? This is absolutely an issue. And that's why I chose to tell it from the perspective of women. This is absolutely an issue that we can we can comfortably put past politics, and that the politicalization of it is not going to help help us in any way. That this is one of those where the space of the center matters, uh, and and that's not always true of everything, but I think it's certainly true of this subject. Were there any conversations about a target audience? I mean, I, I assume you want as many people to see it as possible, but do you want you know Fox to see it, the women at Fox, women at large, men? Like, who are you kind of looking to with this film? Well, you know, you're never too much aware of that, right? Um, certainly, we are. This is the kind of film that people on the right will, you know, further to the right will complain about, and people further to the left will complain about. You, you kind of know that going in. Um, you know, it is true that that some of the more, you know, loudest voices online, community loudest voice, communities with the loudest voice online aren't necessarily the ones you have to worry about in terms of the audience, right? I mean, it's a, sort of a weird irony that if you were to if you were to pay attention to Twitter, you know, those voices often are don't just don't matter in terms of ultimate audience composition. You know, kind of counterintuitively when you actually crunch the data. Um, so, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're never thinking too much about audience, but you certainly, you know, you certainly want the thing to appeal to, you know, to, 
you know, as many people as possible when it's when it's about a, su- a subject like this. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes, you know, the lack of an obvious advocacy group will make something feel as though it doesn't have an audience, but that's not true. It's like, you're, in, you know, in, actually the, the general audience, you know, um, uh, will, will carry the day. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, it's always, but it's always, an, it's always, uh, an interesting dance and, and one is always surprised. You mentioned kind of your, you know, your research, like just your immersion phase, head down doing the work, not seeing all the other films that are coming out. Do you have any advice for helping people not be so distracted by the movie of the week and what's popular right now? Like, have you always been like that or what kind of led you in that direction? Yeah, you know, I moved to Europe when I was 22 and I lived more or less, more or less in Europe for the next 12, 15 years. So, you know, I, I, you know, I know what it's like to be able to step out of your culture, right? And and then come back. And I, you know, I feel like there's this fear we have that if we step away, if we, you know, if we if we lose, if we don't read our blogs and don't keep up, that we're going to fall behind as writers because you know you got to, you know, we are the, you know, the people who are out there sort of trafficking in, in these ideas. And that's just not, that's not true. You can catch up. There's very few discourses in the world that you can't catch up with in the course of a, a good slog through, you know, a week or so of, of trying to find out what's going on. So, so yeah, I think I, I would always encourage people to try and experience more life and less insular, um, you know, insular commodities or insular artifacts that are within their, their particular field. Um, you know, um, uh, I think also there's this moment where, you know, the the video store geek model, you know what I mean? That model really benefited a lot, of, a lot. But I think because movies have become so fragmented, like culture itself, right? I mean, you know, there's this, you know, now if you were to look at the, you know, the, the list of the best films of the year, some of them are from different cultures. There's certainly different ethnic perspectives and certain, you know, uh, and, and certainly there's a broadening uh, objective. We're not there yet, obviously. We're a little, long, long way to go, but there's there's such there's such diversity going on that I'm not sure there's enough unified culture really to make becoming a student of you know of um, any particular one um, type of film as beneficial as it would have been 20 years ago when you could become a master in that genre, like and you could you know you could sort of traffic in that genre. I think films have just become so broad genres have become more diffuse and that sort of thing that you have to be a little bit more judicious in your choices. That's my instinct. At least I'm not entirely sure I'm right about that. Um, that's, that's certainly something I think about. One more question. If you, ha- if you want to answer this or can, do you feel kind of a, a sense of justice at the end of the movie or with the way things are going now? Well, you know, I wrote this film before the Me Too movement you know, in its most populous incarnation. So, I, you know, Miss Miss Burke was clearly, in the, you know, writing about it herself, but there weren't a lot so much. So, so I don't know. I think I think I feel like this is something we were all moving towards to a, a sort of flashpoint on this issue. And so, I don't think I feel a sense of justice. I do feel like um, that we are at a place with this issue where we can open it up and we can do a broader, you know. 1500 screen type movie about it that would work. Right. And previously this would have been an issue that you saw in New York and LA, you know, a hundred screens. 
you know, and not not a bigger, you know, not a bigger movie with comedic elements and, you know, and, and you know, that played, you know, in every city in the country. So I'm, I have high hopes and we'll see this weekend. I have high hopes that we're finally at a place that, that a social issue film like this can play in the malls. And that has not always been the case. Thank you for tuning into this show. If this is your first time listening, please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a rating. Providing a rating or sharing content is one of the best ways to help the series grow. Make sure to also follow or like us on your favorite platforms like Instagram, Facebook, or the new YouTube series we've started. And check for daily updates over at creativeprinciples.live.